it seems sometimes when we look around that we're living in a world of broken promises, unfulfilled expectations and big letdowns. Who can we believe? Who do we believe? Who do you believe? Do you believe the leader of the opposition or the leader of the Conservative Party? Do they even believe themselves? We've put them in positions where they're forced to say things about after Brexit that even they don't know. We don't believe them. And the word of the year last year, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, was post-truth. Fake news and post-truth is, is the spirit of the age, where basically post-truth means, says, it doesn't matter if it's not true. If it's a good story, we like it better than the truth. Who do you believe? Everything has changed. In our employment, everything has changed as well. It used to be not uncommon to work for the same organisation for the whole of your career. The same company, the same public institution for the entirety of your career. And even these days in our companies, people will tell us, we're going through a rocky patch, we're going through a difficult patch, a couple of difficult quarters, but it's all going to be okay. Don't worry. Everyone's job is safe. Only to find out six months later that nobody's job was safe. Who can we believe? Everything has changed. Even in our relationships, commitments and promises seem to be a thing of the past. We don't seem to make those commitments. It's unpopular now to make those commitments. Why make a commitment? Because you might just want to walk out. Why? It's much easier to walk out of a relationship that you never committed to in the first place, isn't it? And um, it's, it's much e- So these days, people will move, some people will move from relationship to relationship and basically say, I'm sorry, I found someone who understands me better than you do. I'm sorry, I found someone I love more than you do. Everything has changed. Or has it? We are here today celebrating the fact that actually we trust someone who doesn't change. Everything has not changed. Or not everything has changed. Not everything has changed. We live in a world that's changing around us, but not everything changes. Not every promise maker breaks his promises. Not everyone who assured you that something was going to happen later on down the road is going to turn to you and say, I'm sorry, I couldn't do it. Not everybody will turn to you, however old you get, one day and say, I'm sorry, I found someone I love more than you. Not everyone will do that. Because there is one whose word is his bond. We used to use that phrase, didn't we? His word is his bond, meaning you can trust that person even if uh, there's no agreement, nothing written down, you can trust them because their word is their bond. We don't use it anymore. But God's word is his bond. His word, Jesus, is his promise to us. Let's just look at some of those promises very briefly. See, God made a promise 2,000 years before Jesus to, a, to an ancient and decrepit man called Abraham and his wife who was over 90 and said, this time next year you will have a baby. They didn't believe it. Sarah said, that's not going to happen. And she laughed. And God said, Sarah, you, you laugh, but I promise you. Later on, when the, the Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years, 400 years, generation after generation after generation in slavery. They couldn't remember a time when they were not slaves. And God said, one day, you will have a land of your own. They didn't believe him. But God said, you don't believe me, but I promise you. And between 300 years and 700 years before Jesus, God promised something else to the prophets. God said, someone will come. I will send someone, a Messiah, And he will rescue you from everything that's wrong in this world. 
They didn't understand it. They couldn't work it out. What does it mean? When will he come? What does the word Messiah even mean? What even is that? But God said, you don't understand, but I promise you. And God delivered on every one of those promises. Sarah laughed. Israel threw insults. There's that great line of sarcasm in the desert when, in Exodus, when God brings them out of Egypt. And he's brought them out of Egypt, out of slavery, as they said, but they still don't believe. And they come to this point where the Red Sea is in front of them, uncrossable, and they turn around and the Egyptian army is behind them, undefeatable. And they turn to Moses and they come out with this brilliant line that says, were there not enough graves in Egypt that you've brought us into the desert to die? Cynical and sarcastic. Were there no graves in Egypt, Moses, that you had to bring us into the desert to die? What are you doing? Why didn't you just leave us? Sarah laughed, Israel threw insults, and the prophets didn't understand. But God kept his promise. And today, through uh, the songs, through the worship, through the prayers, and hopefully lifting the lid in these next few minutes, we're looking at this idea of Christian hope. What is the hope that we have? Can we, can we nail it down to something we can understand and say? Uh, the first thing I want to say is that these ancient promises, which we take, sometimes we think, well, that was the promise to Abraham, and that was the promise to the Israelites. They were promises to us as well, because we can look at them factually and say, actually, God said that, and that happened. God said that, and that happened. It might have taken hundreds of years in the coming of the Messiah, but God promised it, and he delivered it. And that's the first reason we can trust God. And so, I, I would suggest to you that the Christian hope, we can, we can use this phrase, enduring confidence in the promises of God. The Christian hope, our hope, is enduring confidence in the promises of God. Some people limit that to just heaven, but that's so limiting. The Christian hope isn't pie in the sky when you die. It's something here and now. It's the kingdom that's here and now that God sends amongst us, and it goes on forever. Enduring confidence in the promises of God, or simply just trusting that God will do what he's always done. We're not asking God to do something new and become something different. He's always kept his promises. Look in the Bible. He's always done that. This is not something new. And yet this word, hope, is an odd word. It's a flimsy word, and we use it in our language to mean often something we don't really believe. Let's just look at that for a minute. Hope is a strange word. This fellow is called Charles Revson, and he had a definition of hope. He founded the company Revlon, the cosmetic company. And he said, in the factory we make cosmetics, but in the store, we sell hope. <laughs> Which is a kind of hope. I don't know, ladies, if you still believe in that hope. Some of you more than others. But that's not really hope, is it? That's just a sales line. Or we might say uh, today, oh, I hope I do well in my test tomorrow, even though I've done no revision whatsoever. That's, just des- that's not hope. That's desperation, isn't it? It's not going to happen. Or we commonly say, and I say, I hope, it, hope it's good weather this week. Well, I hope it's going to be well. But that's not, that's not a firm hope, is it? That's just, uh, that's just really not going to happen again, is it? Not in this country. And uh, an important idea to get hold of is actually our faith doesn't depend on hoping that something will happen. As Christians, we don't live in the hope that something might happen. We live in the certainty that things have happened in the past. 
And the Christian speaker, Pete Meadows, said it like this. He said, Christians do not live in the hope that something might happen. We live in the certainty that something happens on a hill. And it changed everything. Christians do not live in the hope that something might happen. We live in the certainty that something happened on a hill. And it changed everything. So, the first thing, uh, hope is not about being hopeful. That's the wrong idea. Hope is enduring confidence in the promises of God. And let's just recap what those promises are. Most of you will know these. But what is it that God has promised to us? Because to Abraham and Sarah, he promised a nation, he promised a baby. To the Israelites, he promised a land. What, What does God promise us? God promises, if you like, three things. First of all, that our relationship with him is made right. God God is bringing back a people who are far away from him. This is the good news, the gospel. People have grown far away. God is bringing them back, and he does it through the death of his own son, Jesus. Our relationship is made right. That God's second promise, that God's kingdom has started here and now, and it will go on forever. The treasure is here now to be opened. This is the way we live our lives with purpose and meaning and direction. It starts now. That's the second promise. And the third promise that God makes to every believer is to come in and live in the life of every believer who puts their trust in him. To actually live in the heart of every believer who puts their trust in him. These are extravagant promises. These are big promises, aren't they? They're not small promises. These are are big things that, that someone is offering. And somebody might say, well, okay, I can see the promise to Abraham that, that you know, God, God did okay on that, gets a tick mark, and these other promises in the Old Testament, right up through the Exodus and through the prophets, I can see those. But how does God, how does he make the promise to you and to me, these promises, how does he achieve those? How does he realize those? How, how are those actually gained? How did God do that? And for that, we turn to the events of last weekend and Easter. We're still in the period of Easter. How was this hope achieved? Because our hope is founded in the events, the momentous events of a single weekend. The Christian hope is founded in the disturbing events of a single weekend. There have been millennia, thousands and thousands of years when humans have lived on this planet, and yet God's promise to you and to me was realized in just three days in a single weekend. Let's just look at that weekend and this man, Jesus, who, uh, who is the realization of our hope, who is the guarantor of those promises that God makes to us. Because if our hope depends on Jesus somehow, we better know who he is. We better know about this man. This man, Jesus, was a man, 100%, fully man. He wasn't, fit, he wasn't like an amphibian, half man and half God. Holy man and holy God. He came from a poor home. He had a family. He went out with people. He went to parties, ate, drank, laughed and socialized. But he also wept at the death of his friend Lazarus. He was sometimes uh, anxious. He grew angry at the the traders in the temple. He was frustrated sometimes, just like a man would be. And yet, people saw there was something very different about him. He was a man, and yet he wasn't a man. He could somehow reset the laws of nature once he stilled a storm on a lake as though, as though he had authority over the laws of nature. 
once, uh, many times, he made people better, physically better, but spiritually better. He forgave their sins as though, as though he had authority over sin and death. And he taught in a completely new way that people were not accustomed to. He said all sorts of things. He said, first of all, don't worry about things. Your father knows you need these things. Seek first my kingdom. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. He, wants, uh, he made people scratch their heads by telling them things that on the face of it didn't make sense. He once said to his disciples who were having an argument about which, who, who was the most important, he said, look, if you want to be somebody, you have to learn to be nobody. If you really want to be someone in this world, you have to learn to be no one. And he used a child and brought a child, out, a child into the middle of them and said, unless you can become like this child, you cannot enter my kingdom. It's hard to understand. He changed the Old Testament laws in several, several cases. He said, this is what you've heard before, but this is what I'm telling you now. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy, but now I tell you, love your, you love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He changed the, 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 the established religious laws of the day. And... Um, he confused people with parables and stories. He didn't always give them the end of the story. He said, go away and think about that. Go away and think about it. He taught in a new way. He was more than just a man. And yet, on the Friday, which we now call Good Friday, all that was in the past. All that was, ir- it was irrelevant. It was irrelevant because Jesus was dead. And uh, last week, I was colouring at the back last Sunday, but I heard Jonathan talking about this. And he said, often we prefer a clean gospel, don't we? We like the nice cloths. Um, they're made of wood or made of silver that we wear because they are, we're nice, we're good middle-class people living in a, a nice clean area and we like the nice shiny crosses. But it wasn't like that, was it? It absolutely wasn't like that. I was once uh, in Italy. We were on holiday in Sorrento uh, on Good Friday and there was a march and they call it the Black March. And on Sunday morning they had the White March. The Black March was torchlight, torchlit procession, black, black hoods, and horrible gnarled crosses, barbed wire they were carrying to look like a crown of thorns, and, and bent, huge bent nails, gnarled nails, and it looked macabre, it looked a bit frightening. But I thought, maybe as Protestants we've gone too far the other way, and we just forget this, because it's a little bit uncomfortable for us. But just, it's worth just remembering occasionally that this was a real execution. This was uh, the most excruciating form of torture and execution which the Romans, with all their ingenuity, could come up with. Jesus was whipped. He was stripped naked. We like to show him with a little cloth around his waist, but he was stripped naked. It was shameful. It was degrading. It was humiliating. And he was nailed to his hands and his feet to that cross. He was made to carry it first, then nailed to it, um, and then the mocking starts. He, he saved so many people, why can't he save himself? If you're the son of God, if you're Elijah, come down and we'll believe in you. Why can't you do it? And everybody turns away. The disciple, disciples run away. The sky turns black. The people turn away because it's too shameful. Even God turns away. And there in the middle of it all, alone, Jesus dies. Dying for breath dying in shame, dying in pain, and dying for you. 
And yet, at the precise moment that Jesus gives up his spirit, at that moment, God says, that's my hope, that's my promises to you, guaranteed. That's the way I guarantee those promises to you. At the precise moment that Jesus breathes his last, the hopes of creation are fulfilled, and God keeps the most shocking promise he has ever made to anyone. Much more shocking, much more appalling than anything he promised to anybody in the Old, in the Old Testament. God, make, God realize, his promises to you are realized in that moment. This is God's plan that nobody predicted, nobody could understand. And this is why we have this enduring confidence in the promises of God. But it didn't end there, did it? Thank God it didn't end there on the Friday. There's that famous uh, sermon, which I think, is, was it Tony Campolo? Anyway, it's Friday, he said, but Sunday's coming. And uh, on Easter Saturday, that must have been the longest day in history, mustn't it? People just didn't understand what what's happened to Jesus. He promised so much. Did, didn't he calm that storm on the lake? Didn't, didn't he raise Lazarus? Didn't he heal those people? And it was all for nothing? The longest day in history. And yet, it was only as dawn began to break on Easter morning, things moving slowly at first, the women going to the tomb, that they get the most wonderful, astonishing surprise that's ever in the history of our universe. The audacity of God's plan becomes apparent. The one who could reconfigure the laws of nature has reconfigured death itself and restated what death means. And the shocking extent of God's love for his people becomes apparent. And so it is here, in the broken tissues and the spilt blood of a cross, that our hope is realised. His word is his bond. And even angels didn't get it. Well, Peter says something about that in his letter. Even angels were confounded. What does Wesley say? Um, in vain, the firstborn seraph tries to sound the depths of love divine. In vain, the firstborn seraph, the firstborn, the greatest of angels, tries to find the extent of God's love. What is the extent of this love? There must be a limit to God's love. How far will he go? Can't do it. You can't sound the depths of God's love. And some people say, that's not true. How can a man come back from the dead? How can resurrection be real? How can that really happen? Honestly, I, I, I think that's the easiest thing to believe. <laughs> this is the God who created those, those laws of nature in the first place. This is the God who created the universe as a closed system with laws of physics and laws of motion that govern it. It's completely within his capability to put a new event into that system, to change those laws for a moment, for a day. It's completely within his capability. That's not hard. That's not surprising. He created the laws of nature in the first place. They belong to him. Of course he can change them. This is the thing that's hard to believe, that's really hard to believe, that he would do it for us. The real surprise is that God would love us enough to do that. Now that is a surprising thing. So, quick, quick recap. We've talked about the hope that's in the Bible and we've seen that in the Old Testament, whenever God made promises, he kept them. We can see that. We can look back and we can see, yeah, I can see every single promise God has kept. 
And we've seen that God now makes promises to you and to me. And he guarantees them by the cross. That's the guarantor, the guarantee of his promise. So our hope is enduring confidence in the promises of God. And those promises are founded, are built, are guaranteed in the shadow of a Roman execution. What a plan. Even angels couldn't understand it. So, with that somewhat lengthy introduction, let us turn to the text. You're getting worried now, aren't you? <laughs> now, we're, we're about three quarters of the way through. But we will look at some of the things that Peter has said, uh, because he adds a few things to this. First of all, who, what is this uh, What is this letter, this one Peter? What is that? Yeah. So it's a letter by Peter the Apostle, the same one who kept doing things in the gospel, kept jumping out of boats and cutting people's ears off with his sword and saying, I'll never leave you, Jesus, and then denying him. The Peter of the gospel, the action Peter, the guy who kept jumping around, this is the guy who wrote this letter. He is well known in the gospels. We find him in Acts as well. Um, not as obvious, we, we tend to think Acts is about Paul, but Peter plays a number of roles in Acts. He's one of the people who defends Paul when Paul comes to the Council of Jerusalem and they don't trust him because this is the guy who's been dragging Christians into jail. And Peter is one of the people who argues for Paul. And Peter is the person in, you may remember, Acts 10 and 11, he's, he falls into a sleep and God shows him a sheep with lots of unclean animals on it. And he says, Peter, what do you see? And Peter says, they're all unclean. And God says, don't call anybody unclean because you have no right to do that. I declare them to be clean and I send you now to the non-Jews. I'm sending you to the unclean people, the Gentiles of this world. You will take the gospel to them. Don't call them unclean. And Peter goes to see Cornelius, who's a Roman pagan. Very unclean, according to Jews. So he plays a big part in Acts and now he's an elder of a church, we believe, he is uh, older and wiser and more reflective, a more reflective Peter, looking back, at, looking back across his life and all these things that have happened, he writes a letter to the churches of Asia Minor, which is Turkey, pretty much. Um, the, the letter is mainly a, a, a letter of encouragement to Christians who are being persecuted. But we will just read uh, part of the first chapter, which I'll read again. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed at the last time. In all this, you greatly rejoice Though for a little while you may have had to suffer grief of all kinds of trials, these have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith, of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by the fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end results of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And then the last paragraph. 
Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the times and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointed when he was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. Those promises actually were not for them but for you. When they spoke of the things that you have now been told by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit from heaven. Even angels long to look into these things. It's a long paragraph and some of these folks like Peter write with lots of commas in sentences that seem to go on. But let's just look at three of his ideas quite quickly. Um, So he talks about this great and living hope that can never fade. And he makes a number of points. We'll just pick up on three of them. First of all, an inexpressible joy. This joy is here today, and this joy is not the same as being happy, is it? Sometimes we're happy and sometimes we're sad, and, and that's human, that's okay to be sad, to be depressed sometimes. But Peter is saying there's something underlying that that goes deeper than human happiness, which is joy, a holy joy, a joy knowing that our salvation, our ultimate uh, redemption has been won by Christ, and that can never be taken away. Someone once said to me, Minister at Bramall said, um, it's a bit like uh, being out at sea. If you're out at sea when the tsunami struck in 2001, you know, you were devastated, devastated. But deep down at the bottom of the ocean, nobody noticed. It was just a bubble. And it's a little bit like that, that we have this deep joy within us for which we can depend on God. We have meaning and purpose in this life now. We have direction in this life now. This isn't something we're waiting for till we get to heaven. Uh, The new era has begun. The kingdom is in the midst of you. All the gospel writers say that as well. Jesus said, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you now. And grief as well as joy. That is a normal experience of the Christian life, says Peter. And that letter actually talks more about grief than joy later on. It's, It's normal to experience in the Christian life. And it's valuable to God. Peter says, um, this this uh, grief that you have is of greater worth than gold. In God's eyes, it's of greater worth than gold. We don't understand that, but that's what he says. And I like his two footnotes to the prophets. It says, the prophets tried to understand this stuff. They saw the promises of God and they flicked through the Old Testament and tried to understand and prayed and and they never could understand it because they didn't see Jesus. And those promises were for us. And I love his... uh, his last state, his last statement. Even angels long to look into these things. Or, if you look at the, the message translation by Eugene Peterson, he says, angels would have given anything to be in on this. Angels would have given anything to be in on this. This kind of holy curiosity, which Wesley reflects on as well. Angels couldn't find the extent of God's love. They couldn't measure the, the depths of God's love. They couldn't do it. They couldn't believe it. Okay, so um, we'll finish up with a little summary, just one slide, and then a, and then a quick story. Um, so we have this, these, we see these promises that God has made throughout history and kept. God makes promises to us now, and he guarantees them in the cross. The Christian hope is enduring confidence in those promises of God. That's our hope, enduring confidence in the promises of God. It's not about being hopeful, hope it's sunny tomorrow, it's not like that. that that's, no, that's nothing to do with Christian hope. 
It's enduring confidence in the promises of God or trusting that God will do what he's always done. Just, Lord, just continue to do what you've always done. You don't have to be, a diff- be anything different. And let us not forget, our hope is founded in the momentous, momentous events of a single weekend, in the disturbing events of a single weekend in history. I've got a, a five-minute summary of Christian hope. It's not a five-minute summary of this sermon, because it was done about six months ago. But it's on my website, sevenminutes.net. So at the bottom, still on the home page there shows that I don't change it that often. Uh, if you don't know what that means or how to, how to access that, it's an audio recording, a podcast, and it's on the topic of Christian hope, then come and have a word with me after the service, and I'll show you how to get onto that. Um, but lastly, oh, so that's, that's useful. That's a summary. That's, um, the summary might help you just to uh, pick up some of the ideas we've had in this sermon, or, or indeed if you uh, fell asleep during this sermon. And if you did, Jesus saw you when you were asleep. (laughs) I might not have seen you. Yes, okay. So then, just one more thing, which is a story. Because sometimes, you know, we're we're all human, and we find it difficult sometimes. We go through difficult circumstances, and sometimes we wonder about the future. God has given us these promises, sure, but how can I really be sure? And sometimes I'm worried about the future. What will happen to this person? What will happen to them? What will happen with this illness? And they are normal and natural things to be concerned about. And I'm going to just read this story out. I'm not going to explain it to you. That would be easy and too easy for you. You can think about it. It's not that hard and it's a short story. It's called E-flat. Arturo Toscanini, one of the greatest conductors who ever lived, He was sitting at his podium before a concert was beginning one evening. As the orchestra warmed up, you could hear the strings and the woodwind tuning up their instruments. As the orchestra tuned up just before the performance, a bassoon player appeared before him in a fearful panic. Maestro, maestro, he said. I am very sorry, but my instrument has suffered an accident. The E-flat will not sound. I am afraid I cannot play at all tonight. This poor man was shaking in his boots in front of Toscanini. Upon hearing the devastating news, Toscanini went silent and closed his eyes like this and just stood there for a minute. Poor bassoon player was shaking like a leaf. He cowered in fear of his fury. The great conductor then put his hands to his face and continued in silence, adding to the poor bassoon player's agony. Maestro, he said, I have no E-flat. At last, Toscanini looked up and said quietly, don't worry, everything will be all right. E-flat does not appear in your music tonight. See, Toscanini had played through the entire concert in his head. The overture, the concerto, all four movements of the symphony. He paged through hundreds of pages of music in his head and seen the bassoon player's line in every one of them. With his intimate knowledge of the music and everything that was to come, the the conductor reassures the bassoon player, everything will be all right. Don't worry, everything will be all right. 